Please pray. Oh, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that everything you put in our lives this past week and recently has all led us to this point of once again being in your house, once again having the blessing and the treasure of being able to look at your word, dig into it, wrestle with it, make it a part of who we are. I thank you that your words are life, your words are strength, your words are freedom and power, healing. That no matter what the culture yells and how loud they yell it, nothing will change the truth of your word. We can always anchor our souls into it. We thank you for the hope that you give to us through the death and resurrection of your son that our eyes could be opened uh, to see that salvation and, and see the worldview uh, that you're changing us to see this, this entire world around us. I pray your blessing upon our time this morning, that your spirit would go forth and work in our hearts through, through what you have already written in your word. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a fun fact uh, to start off our time this morning. Did you know that the Roman Colosseum, built in the first century AD, actually took less time to complete than the United States White House? Did you know that? The White House, whose construction uh, began in 1792, took 13 years to complete while the Roman Colosseum, which could hold between 50,000 to 80,000 people, more than even some professional football stadiums today, began work in 70 AD and was completed only 10 years later. However, there are some building projects that dragged on seemingly forever. Here are some of the longest time periods of construction. The Leaning Tower of Pisa, took 199 years to complete. And you would think over the course of those almost 200 years, they would have realized the glaring issue that would eventually give it its name. But I guess not. The York Minster Cathedral in England, built in the Middle Ages, took 252 years to complete. Now we start to get to times that are just hard to wrap our minds around. The Chichen Itza complex in Peru, built by the Mayans, took 400 years before it was complete. The Angkor Wat Temple in Thailand, one of the wonders of the world, also took 400 years to build. The Petra Citadel in the Jordan Desert, carved right into the rock, as you can see there, and holding up to 20,000 people within it, took 850 years to finish the process. But does anyone know which, which structure took by crazily far the longest time to complete? What is it? Who wants to venture a guess here? Just yell it out. I'm not gonna call on anybody raising their hands here. Huh? 
Great Wall of China. The Great Wall of China spread well over 4,000 miles when Dunn accommodated one million soldiers and took, how long do you think it took to build? Anyone know? Some of you are thinking, I didn't know this was going to be a Q&A session right here. <laughs> the Great Wall of China took over 2,000 years to build. Now, does anyone know where I'm going with this? <laughs> We've been building up to the climax of this account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead for a long time now. It hasn't been over 2,000 years, but it's been close, right? So... <laughs> Some of you have been th here throughout that process. Today we finally come to the height of what we've been building up to for a while now. Over a month ago, we started looking at this account in the Gospel of John, the only gospel to mention this story, where in the family that Jesus loved for their no-strings-attached faith of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Lazarus had gotten sick and died from that sickness. His sister sent messengers to where Jesus was on the other side of the Jordan River, but by the time the messengers reached Jesus, Lazarus had already died. Meanwhile, once Jesus found out about Lazarus being sick and from all the messenger from what all the messengers knew at that point, that was the extent of it, he purposely stayed where he was for another 2 days. When we covered this, you'll remember I mentioned that it was not because Jesus was uncompassionate, unmerciful, or didn't care about Lazarus or his sisters, but that he waited another two days to make a point. Jesus already knew Lazarus was dead by the time the messengers reached him. We find that out from verse 11. He obviously wouldn't have made it back in time anyway. No, Jesus' entire point in waiting was for everyone back in Bethany to see that without a shadow of a doubt, Lazarus was good and dead and had been dead for days. That would make what he was about to do even more impossible in human understanding and even more glorifying to God. When Jesus announced to his disciples that he was going back to the very same area that he had just escaped being stoned to death by his own people, his disciples, especially Thomas, you know, the cheery guy that he is, readied, <laughs> readied himself to also die with Jesus when they all returned to, in Thomas's mind anyway, imminent death. But Jesus knew what God's plan for him was and that it was not going to end that way. It would soon, just a mere couple of months from then, but it wasn't time yet, and it would happen by crucifixion. We saw Jesus' confidence in God the Father's sovereign plan for him, and how that extends to us today as God's children and followers of Jesus. When it's God's timing for him to take us home, it's his time according to his plan. And until then, while we don't live stupidly, we're invincible until it's God's timing for us. What does that do? That frees us from the fear of when we'll die. And that frees us to focus wholeheartedly 
on the gospel and kingdom building work Jesus has called us to do. We then talked about Jesus having the authority over life and resurrection, including the clear physical evidence of that and calling a dead man out of his tomb, including his own resurrection from his own death and including the two resurrections of all of humanity. The first one, those who repented of their sin and put their trust in his death and resurrection on their behalf in payment for that sin to unto life with him for all of eternity, and the second one of those who rejected him unto eternal condemnation. And last week we looked at in depth the place of mourning and grieving in the life of the believer in Jesus. At the beginning of last week's passage, Lazarus was still dead, and by the end of last week's passage, Lazarus was still dead. And so we looked at the answers to the big questions, where was God in the fill-in-the-blank tragedy, including in our personal lives, and why did God allow this horrible thing to happen in my life? I can't fit all of the many facets of that message we talked about last week into one sentence, so I encourage you that if you missed that message from last week, to go back and watch or listen to that on our website or podcast platforms. When we ended our time last week, Jesus had arrived at the tomb. We began and ended our message last week with death. And in verse 38 from last week, we see Jesus described as deeply moved again, going head to head with death. The stage is set now for Jesus' battle royale with death. And now we see Jesus' first move, a taunt in a way, towards death. So if you brought your Bible with you, turn to John chapter 11. We're going to be picking up in the first part of verse 39. Uh, if you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 11, verse 39, or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. But we read, Jesus said, remove the stone. Three words, but three very loaded words. Remove the the stone. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, and as we've seen in recreated pictures of Jesus' tomb, oftentimes tombs would be cut into the side of a rock, making a cave with an opening at the entrance and a rut dug into in front of the opening into which a rounded stone would be rolled, covering the entrance to the cave tomb and keeping robbers and animals out while the body decomposed. To deter would-be thieves, the stone would naturally be very, very heavy and require more than one person to move it into place. Since there was a crowd surrounding the bereaved at this point, which we re referenced last week, there would certainly be enough men around to move this stone away. However, to move this stone away, once the dead body was laid inside the tomb, was unheard of at this point. Absolutely unheard of. One of the reasons, besides the obvious, that it was unheard of, was that according to Jewish law, one risked 
religious defilement from being in such close proximity to a dead body. Jewish people wanted to stay as far away from a dead body, not go any closer than they needed to, and certainly not exposing themselves to it by uncovering a tomb entrance. But Jesus was more concerned about what climactic action he was about to take rather than fret over the mere possibility of someone coming anywhere close to the dead body. This humanly limited emphasis on common sense is what we see in Martha when it comes to this point as well. And we've been talking a lot about Martha lately and about what we can understand about her personality as the type A, no-nonsense, straight-to-the-point person. And her response here is no different from what we already know about her. Second part of verse 39. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, the Jewish custom for the bodies of, of, of the dead was this. In the hot Middle Eastern climate, preparation for the burial happened almost immediately after death. Similar to last week's message, I don't want to be overly macabre, but I do want us to understand this process so we understand Martha's line of thinking here. In the burial preparation, spices would be applied to the body to delay the stench of the decomposing body, then wrapped in grave linen and placed on the floor of the tomb cave. The body was left there for a year, fully allowing it to decompose in that climate until all that remained was just bones. After the period of a year was over, the family of the deceased would then enter the tomb, collect the bones, put them in a box, and that would be slid into a shelf cut into the wall of the tomb. This would allow the tomb to be used time and time again, over and over and over, for the different members of a family. But only four days after the burial preparation for Lazarus, Let's think about it for a second here, even if you don't want to. His body decomposition, especially in that climate, would have been well underway. And the stench enough to knock someone out. Martha, ever the common sense person, felt the need to point this out to Jesus. However, Jesus is undeterred and responds with verse 40. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? That, ultimately, that doesn't even matter because there's the, the person that's going to be coming out of the tomb is not going to be four days decomposed. Again, Jesus is more focused on the action he's about to take, which completely bypasses the concerns and worries of the fallen and finite humans around him. Isn't it still the same with us as fallen and finite humans today, even as followers of Jesus? We're so focused on the fears we have of thinking about all the worst things that could happen in any given situation, the worst case scenario, and trying to come up with solutions for all of these worst-case scenarios, 
or we're losing sleep over all the concerns we have about our health, our families, our nation, or all of our time is consumed being anxious and worried about how something is possibly ever going to work out or get solved or come anywhere close to being what we want it to be. That we're not even thinking at all, not even one ounce, about what God could be doing in all of it. Expanding Jesus' words in verse 40 to our lives today, even in situations where our death or the death of a loved one is imminent, where are we focused on looking? And what are we focused on? The situation? And all of the worst case scenarios? Or are we focusing our thoughts and attention on what God is doing in that situation to bring glory to himself? For us as God's children bought with the blood of Jesus, God will always use every situation in our lives to bring glory to himself and redeem it in our lives. He is the God of redemption. Are we forfeiting seeing what God is doing, what he's revealing to us about himself, and what peace he wants to give us because we're so consumed by our situation and not looking for what God is possibly doing behind the scenes in it? What are we forfeiting? Everyone around Jesus was consumed by the death of Lazarus and what would naturally happen should the stone be rolled away from the tomb. Not one of them was thinking at all about what Jesus could be doing in the midst of all of it. Had they thought of the possibility of what Jesus might be doing, they may have happily fallen over each other to get the stone out of the way as quickly as possible and not questioning why he's asking them to remove the stone. Finally, after what Jesus said, they were at least moved enough to do what he said in rolling the stone away. Beginning part of verse 41. So they removed the stone. After Jesus responded, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Jesus, as he's done his entire ministry, once again, turned the attention towards God the Father. Not once has Jesus done any miracles or given any te teaching that was not what the Father wanted him to do, and not one that Jesus has done any miracles or given any teaching that was meant to glorify himself. All he's done, his entire earthly ministry, is to place the glory on the Father and point out that he's just serving the Father in obedience. That comes forth once again in what Jesus does at this point. Second part of verse 41 and into verse 42. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. Once again, 
The point of all of this is to show that God the Father sent Jesus as the Son of God and as his representative. And therefore, Jesus simply thanks the Father for what is about to happen. And he does so saying, I'm hoping everybody around me is listening to me right now because it's for their sake. As noted by biblical scholarship, this prayer is directly connected to and referencing Elijah's prayer in 1 Kings 18.37. Why? In 1 Kings 18, which you guys in the youth group, we looked at in the youth group a couple Wednesdays ago, Elijah was proposing, uh, purposing to turn the heart of the nation of Israel back to the one true God from their idolatry. So he challenged the priests of Baal to put a sacrifice on their altar and call Baal to send fire from heaven to burn it up. Those priests spent hours screaming out to Baal and cutting themselves up to get his attention with absolutely no answer. Then Elijah reconstructed the altar to God, put the sacrifice on it, and then had several pitchers of water poured all over it to soak it completely. Again, why? To show that in human understanding and in human finality, for that sacrifice to burn up, it would be completely impossible unless God showed up. Elijah then prayed this prayer in anticipation of what God would do. And he says, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. And that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that this people may know that you, Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back. Immediately following that prayer, immediately, verse 38, you can look this up. Immediately following that prayer, fire raged down from heaven, not only consuming the sacrifice, but the entire altar and vaporizing all of the water in the trench around the altar that had soaked it completely. God had indeed done the humanly impossible and the people believed in him. It's the same exact point Jesus is making in our passage this morning. In human understanding and human finality, what he was about to do was thoroughly impossible and would not in a billion years ever happen unless God showed up. And the point Jesus was making here was not only relegated to this specific situation, but as a foreshadowing of what was to come. Jesus himself would be killed. And only because of the authority the Father had given to him as the Son of God would the impossible become a reality. That he too would rise from the dead. Without further ado... Jesus turns to the tomb with a stone having been rolled away and shouts, verse 33, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. 
These are some of the most impossible and therefore simply unbelievable words uttered not only in God's word, but in all of human history. Lazarus, come forth. This was Jesus' on-the-ropes punch. He challenged and in that way taunted death by commanding the stone in front of the tomb to be rolled away, and then Jesus only needed one punch to send death reeling. Death would come back swinging at Jesus a couple of months later, landing one on Jesus' jaw, but then Jesus would throw the game-ending knockout punch three days later. The impossible is about to become the jaw-dropping reality. As the crowd looked on, some with mocking, some not knowing what to think, some on the edge of their seat, and some holding their noses in anticipation of what they thought was going to come out of the tomb, what actually came out of the tomb sent everyone into an uproar. Verse 44, the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. As the man is still bound hand and foot with the linen wrappings, one biblical scholar surmised that it was yet another special act of God that he even exited the tomb. Perhaps he was carried out by the Holy Spirit. I don't know if we've ever stopped and thought about how Lazarus came out of the tomb if he's bound from head to toe in these grave linens. Once Lazarus was brought out of the tomb by none other than the holy power of God, Jesus commanded the gawking onlookers to take the burial linens off of him. This was both pragmatic and spiritual. Lazarus, was no, Lazarus no longer needed the burial wrappings at that point as he was physically alive once more. And symbolically, death no longer had its grip on Lazarus. He was a new man, and he was fully alive. Practically, as one biblical scholar pointed out, Jesus wanted to show that Lazarus was not a spirit, but was a physically alive man again. It's the exact same with when Jesus came back to life, giving evidence that he was not a spirit, but he had been physically raised from the dead, but with one major difference. See, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, his body had simply been restored from decay and healed from sickness, but it was the same exact body as he had before. In other words, Lazarus would end up dying again at some point in the future because he had the same exact physical body as he had before. But Jesus, when Jesus rose again from the dead, he was given by God a glorified body, free from limitation, weakness, illness, decay, and death. A body that would and has and will last for all of eternity. And like I've mentioned before, as Paul notes in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus, in his resurrection, is the first fruits 
of and for us. In agricultural term, to describe the first harvest of a crop, giving the indication of the quality, taste, and texture of the rest of the crop. As such, the glorified body Jesus had at his resurrection will be the same type of body he will give to us at the rapture. When he both resurrects his faithful dead and reunites their bodies with their souls and calls up his faithful living. At that point, unlike Lazarus here, but like Jesus, we will be given those glorified bodies. Two, free from limitation, weakness, illness, sin, corruption, decay, and death. Bodies fit for an eternity enjoyed with Jesus. We see the difference in response from the crowd who just witnessed this breathtaking and humanly impossible event. Verses 45 through 46. Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. For some, this was all they needed to believe in Jesus. To what extent, we don't know, but it was at least the first step down the road to putting their full trust and faith in him as the Messianic King and God himself. For others, it only dug their heels into their mistrust of Jesus and that he was a blasphemer even more. They didn't know how Jesus connived what he just did, but they were already fully convinced that it was either some kind of deception or through demonic power. They trusted the Pharisees with their air of righteousness and closeness with God and went running to them, tattling on this latest blasphemous act by Jesus of Nazareth. Again, in connection with recent messages on this event, this point of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead is just that. Resurrection. The power given to Jesus by the Father to raise Lazarus from the dead as a foreshadowing of his own authority to raise himself to life from death, which in turn is a foreshadowing of his authority to raise every single person who has ever lived from death forever. It just depends on where each person will spend that forever. The message of resurrection in general evokes that same kind of response today. It either calls people out of the graves of the death of their sin, bringing them into the life of the Holy Spirit, or it further hardens their hearts and further forces them to dig their heels into their rejection of Jesus. Which is it for any of us sitting here today or watching online later? For those who answer the call of the Holy Spirit churning inside of them to surrender themselves to God, repenting of their sin, rising again, uh, repenting of their sin and accepting that Jesus as their Savior took their place in payment in death 
for their sin, rising again to give them forgiveness and eternal life, committing to live out the rest of their days in service to him as king. This message is all about resurrection unto life. Not only will they be resurrected, if dead by the time of the rapture, and given glorified bodies for eternity with Jesus, but they are given resurrected spiritual life now. That resurrected spiritual life is the Holy Spirit who immediately comes and makes a home within them. From that point on, he starts transforming them, breaking the chains of sin and the death and destruction it only ever brings. He frees them from the death of fear, anxiety, depression, and worry. He breathes life into everything they do in serving God and his kingdom. He trades in a life spent in sorrow and, help, and helplessness and hopelessness for a life spent in joy, no matter the circumstances. He takes the times of heartbreak, and rather than let them stay focused on that pain, reminds them of their position as children of the king of the universe. And that he is always actively at work to redeem those times of heartbreak. He changes their entire worldview from one whose lens is entirely the way the world processes through everything that only results in destruction and death and changes it to one whose spiritual eyes are fixed on the author and finisher of our faith. Knowing God has his perfect plan, he reigns in complete control over our lives. He is good, and nothing will thwart his intentions. And the resurrected spiritual life through the Holy Spirit frees them from the fear and even timing of death, relinquishing it entirely into God's hands, knowing that whenever and however it happens, it is merely a doorway to our eternal joy in the presence of our Savior. If you have not surrendered to that life of resurrection in every way, through repentance of sin and taking Jesus as your Savior and King, will you continue to harden your heart and dig your heels in even more? at hearing about every facet of resurrection from death, especially in connection with Jesus, like those in the crowd in verse 46. If so, know this. The freedom you think you have is not real. The freedom you think you have is not real. It's a deception and a lie the enemy of your soul has led you to believe. That freedom from God and having to surrender your life to him will only lead you further and further down the road of destruction, which will only ever end in getting judged for what you did 
with your so-called liberation and thrown into the tormenting lake of fire for all of eternity. You will also experience resurrection, but it will only be after all of the end times events have happened, and it will only be to be judged by God, condemned by your own sin, and rejection of Jesus as the one source he provided as the salvation from it, and cast into everlasting physical and emotional torment. What do you have? Resurrection unto eternal life or resurrection unto eternal death? Jesus has made it clear time and time and time again. And like I referenced earlier in this message, if you have repented from your sin and surrendered your life to Jesus, are you living in an everyday state? of Jesus' statement in verse 40. Read that with me again. Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Are we living in an everyday state of looking for God to glorify himself in every single one of our circumstances and situations and teaching in and redeeming them even the most confusing, up-in-the-air, painful, heartbreaking, and humanly impossible situations. Remember this. The one you serve is the one who takes the impossible in human understanding and makes it breathtaking reality. And he's the only one who can do that. May we look for the glory of God in our belief in his power and his redemption of every single situation, every single time, and every single season of our lives, knowing he has already given us new life now and knowing he has already sealed us for eternal life with him. We serve the God of redemption, of resurrection, and of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for one of the most famous accounts in your word of Jesus calling Lazarus forth out of the tomb. And Lord, it's the same hope and the same resurrection that we have today. That you have given us spiritual resurrection in the here and now from a life ruled by sin and, and, and being enchained by it. And you give us the promise of resurrection in the future. That when you come back for us, if we've died before that point, you will resurrect us and give us those glorified bodies fit for all of eternity. If we are in a humanly impossible situation right now, I pray that we wouldn't stay focused on the impossibility of that situation, but that we would be looking to you for the redemption of that, for the bursting into that, to change it, to know that if there is any hope, if there's going to be anything that happens to turn this situation around, it will be only through you. 
but I pray that we would focus our hearts on you and your power and your redemption. Always looking to you, always asking you for you to step in and turn that situation around. Always asking you to redeem whatever trauma or painful situation we have in our pasts. Always asking you to free us from our sin and our fear and our anxiety, knowing you are the one source of resurrection and you are the one source of life. May we place our entire lives into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.